Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Gillian Devine tells us about enclosure. Enclosure was a process where common or wasteland was enclosed, often creating great profits for the landowners. Gillian takes the example of how enclosure affected land to the south of Farnham in Surrey. This is a bit about enclosure in general, but with a particular example of the enclosure of the wastes of Farnham Manor. What does enclosure mean? Basically, it's the process by which land, which had been open to everyone, became private property. Land was enclosed in several different ways and for several different reasons. So at this point, perhaps it would be wise to define exactly what enclosure is. First of all, it includes the actual physical enclosure of land by a fence or wall, as the wall at Petworth, which goes on for miles and miles and miles. And it was to make a private estate or pleasure park for the nobility, presumably to distance them from the common man, or in Elizabethan times, to use for sheep farming. Then too, the process by which a man's strips in the common field were collected together, either by mutual agreement or by force of law, that is an act of parliament, into individual fields, probably fenced or hedged. This was an important step in the process of agricultural improvement because it was difficult to improve your own strip when it was sandwiched between others who might not be very good at their strip and had to be sown and harvested at a set time. And thirdly, also the term enclosure includes the process of bringing into cultivation area of what was formerly thought to be waste made possible by improvements in agriculture, the use of new machinery, fertilizers and seeds. This process was accelerated by the Napoleonic Wars and a fear of famine in this country at the end of the 18th century. To this end, the Board of Agriculture formed in the 1790s sent commissioners out into all the counties of England to survey the wastelands. The report for Surrey stated that Frencham was an area of deep, sandy soil, very insignificant in value, and that Hindhead consisted of mostly sandy soil with loamy spots. The commissioners felt that both could be rendered more profitable by planting with larch or fir, and that fish ponds could be established in the hollows. It was presumably as part of this policy that the wastes of Frencham and Hindhead were eventually enclosed although it's hard to believe that anyone seriously thought they could make a living by cultivating French and Common. One suspects that it was more agreed for the land, especially as the area became less remote and inaccessible with the arrival of the railway in both Farnham and Hazemere, which promoted the idea of enclosure in the middle of the 19th century. In the 17th and 18th centuries, every instance of enclosure, 
unless a proper agreement had been reached between the interested parties, involved the passage of an act through Parliament, a costly and time-consuming business. As the process of enclosure gained momentum, moves were made to simplify it and thus to reduce the cost. A bill of 1801 resulted in the passing of a general act, which, although it simplified the procedure, still necessitated the passing of individual acts for each enclosure. Finally, the Act of 1845 removed the requirement for individual examination of each enclosure and entrusted the business to a standing enclosure commission consisting of two permanent commissioners who were to ensure that all proposals for enclosure respected the provisions of the Act and then lay the proposals before Parliament in a bill once a year. The commission worked through assistant commissioners and valuers who had to carry out local inquiries and to be responsible for seeing that the conditions of the Act were met, then to be responsible for the actual work of enclosure and allotment. Among other provisions, the Act stated that persons making the application for enclosure had to represent at least one-third in value of the interests of the land. That's not one-third of the landowners, but those owning one-third of the land. Quite a different matter. One section dealt with the allotment of lands to the Lord of the Manor to compensate him for the loss of the waste. Sections 30 and 31 of the Act dealt with the allotment of ground for the exercise and recreation of the inhabitants of the locality and with allotments of land for the benefit of the labouring poor. These allotments supposedly to compensate the inhabitants for the loss of the acres of waste over which they could roam and exercise their common rights. The Act also sanctioned the sale of part of the land to be enclosed to defray the actual costs of enclosure, thus reducing to nil, in the case of the people of Chert, the charge made on each landowner. Enclosure actually involved the allotting to each man who owned land, even as a copyholder in the parish, a portion of the surrounding waste. The size of the allotment on the waste depended on the size and value of the man's land in the parish, so that the large landowners were allotted large plots of the waste, the small ones, small plots. It was not allotted in a strictly arithmetical ratio, the value in farming terms of the land already owned was also taken into account. As I said before, no charge for this new allotment was made to the landowners of church. Most people are surprised to learn that the heathy common land surrounding Frenchman Church has ever been enclosed. After all, it is still known as the common and shows few physical signs of enclosure, such as hedges or fences to the casual observer. But I can assure you that all of that land that which we now call Frencham Common, and also Hindhead and the Punchbowl, underwent the process of enclosure in the middle of the 19th century and passed into private ownership. This process of enclosure also extinguished the common rights of the peasants as tenants of the manor of Barnum, and so they lost the right to collect wood and furs, cut turf, graze cattle, etc., set out in the customary of the manor. The enclosure of the wastelands of the Manor of Farnham in Frencham Church and Pitfold, we now call Shotmill, was made under this General Act of 1845. Before describing to you the process in full detail, the tithe map of 1838 consisted of a central cultivated area. There wasn't much of it, but there's a few farms along the middle, divided into small fields comprising about 1,200 acres, 
bordered on the north and south by very large areas of waste. The lower common, now called Frencham Common, and the flashes to the north, and the upper common, now Hindhead, to the south. The inhabitants nearly all lived in the central cultivated area on isolated farms, although lawless gangs were supposed to inhabit Hindhead and Whitmore Vale. Large areas of the land in the cultivated owner were owned by a few landlords, many of which were not resident in church. The small farmers were tenants of these landowners, and there were also a few small farmers who owned their farms. The application for enclosure of these wastelands was made on the 2nd of December, 1848. I've been unable to discover who the applicants were. Was it the Bishop of Winchester, who after all nominally owned all of the land at the manor, and in many of whose manors enclosure was proceeding at this time? Or did the copyhold tenants have the right to apply? Even if it was the copyholders making the application, this could have been restricted to a very small number, three or four, since, as I said, much of the land was held by a few major landowners, and a very small number of these represented an interest in one third of the land, and that was the number that needed to apply. Major landowners were Sir Thomas Coombe Miller of Froyle, Henry Wheeler of Binstead, both involved in other enclosures at the same time, Richard Payne of Thursley, the trustee of Queen's College, Oxford, none of whom actually lived in church, and John Luff Poulton, who did, at Hyde Farm. The valuer was appointed on the 2nd of October, 1850. He was Edward Hewitt of Bale Farm, Winchfield, land surveyor, auctioneer, and farmer. He was involved in many other local enclosures awards and crops up several times in connection with other land belonging to the Bishop of Winchester. Notices were inserted in the Hampshire Chronicle advertising a meeting to be held on the 12th of November, 1850, in the Bush Hotel Farnham. At this meeting, claims were required in writing from everyone claiming any common or other right or interest in these wastelands. And claims must state the several particulars in respect whereof they are made, distinguishing the claims in respect of freehold, copyhold, customary and leasehold property from each other. I can't believe that a notice couched in these terms would be understood by the largely illiterate labourers and small farmers of church. And an illustration of that state of the church inhabitants is in an extract from the West Surrey Times on the 28th of January 1861, which was headlined, Deplorable Ignorance. It was about a girl who was pregnant, I think, and suing a man. And apparently her dad didn't know what day of the week it was, it was a largely illiterate area. And the magistrate remarked that he found great ignorance among the witnesses in this neighbourhood, whenever there was a case, presumably. This, plus the time and place of the meeting, 11am in Farnham, must have meant that very few of the poorest class would attend to press their case. This meeting in the bush was adjourned for one week, and then a further notice appeared in the newspaper advertising a meeting to receive claims to be held on the 4th of January 1851 at the Mariners in Frencham, a much more convenient and suitable choice and quite often used for village type things. And I think for the vestry meeting as well. This notice warned them that this would be the last meeting held to receive claims in the proposed enclosure. Despite that, the meeting was adjourned until the 24th of January. These meetings must have been considered sufficient to receive all claims because notices appear again in the Hampshire Chronicle during March 
saying that a statement of claims received had been deposited at the mariners and was presumably to be seen there. Any objections were to be delivered to Edward Hewitt in writing. A further meeting was held to examine and determine any claims. And finally, in June, a schedule of all claims and objections and any determination thereon was deposited at the mariners for inspection. This part of the process had taken about six months. Further notices appeared in the Chronicle from time to time, dealing with tenders for contracts for the making of the public roads, etc. The auction by Messrs. Trimmer and Hewitt, the same Hewitt, who was acting as valuer, under the heading the Frencham and Church enclosure of 800 acres of freehold land at Frencham, Surrey, described as suitable for the erection of villa residences. So you can see the way things were going. This obviously referred to land being sold to defray the costs of enclosure as authorised under the 1845 Act. This description of the plots to be sold is given in detail and using both this and the final enclosure award, it is possible to see exactly who bought which land and how much it cost. 520 of the 800 acres to be sold was in church and included almost all of the lower common. This, of course, represented a considerable loss to the landowners of Church because this land was no longer available for allotment to them under enclosure. The 520 acres in Church was offered for sale in 14 large lots, although it was intended, and it was the custom of the time, that the lots should be small enough to enable local people to buy a plot for the erection of a dwelling. Every cloud has a silver lining, of course. The sale of small plots although fairer to the inhabitants, might have meant the development of an area of Victorian villas on what is now Frencham Common. Luckily, the people who bought the large plots were, for the most part, content not to build too densely on them. Sale of the 14 plots in Church raised £2,235, an average of just over £4 per acre. One of the purchasers was George Trimmer himself, the auctioneer, who bought 42 acres which included the Western Devil's Jump at a cost of just over £3 per acre. And both the Middle Jump and Stony Jump were also sold. Edward Hewitt, the valuer, retaining the right to quarry for stone on Stony Jump until Michaelmas 1852, one of the perks of the job. To proceed with the actual enclosure, the report of the valuer was received by the enclosure commissioners on the 18th of April, 1853, and a meeting to hear objections was held at the Mariners on the 17th of March, 1854. I was very lucky to find amongst the papers at Farnham Museum, a memorial from William Mayhew, one of the larger families in church. He had many objections about the size and place of the land allotted for the recreation of the inhabitants, and also about the land which had been allotted to him, which was on the upper common, that is Hindhead, difficult to farm, very steep. He would have preferred it on the lower common. I don't know whether William Mayhew's objections had any bearing on the final outcome. I rather doubt it, since penciled comments in the margin of his memorial seem to overrule his points. Finally, agreement was reached and enclosure proceeded. The enclosure award has been called the foundation charter of the modern village, and we can certainly see the emergence of modern church from this award. The award can be examined at the Surrey History Centre and consists of two maps and accompanying documents. One map is very similar to the tithe map. The other relates only to the waste and shows it divided up into numbered plots. 
I've traced this second map and have portions of it, but it is rather unwieldy because it is drawn on such a large scale. Each new allotment is numbered. The maps and schedules were drawn up in October 1855 and confirmed by the Enclosure Commissioners in January 1857, about eight years after the original application was made. The first part of the award deals with the stopping up of public pathways, driftways and bridle roads, which previously crisscrossed the common, now of course to be private property and setting out the new paths and roads. This network laid down in the enclosure ward is that in existence today, our modern roads and footpaths being the result of mid 19th century enclosures. I find it quite exciting walking along a footpath and this is here because it went from here to the pub or went from here to the thing. So there was always a, a reason for the footpath. There's one lovely one which goes right through somebody's garden in church because their house was the mill. And evermore, they've had to put up with people just walking down the steps beside the mill because it's a footpath. Although sometimes they were changed if you had influence. This network laid down in the enclosure ward is that in existence today, our modern roads and footpaths being the result of mid 19th century enclosure. The width of the roads, as well as their route, was defined then. The old cultivated area had contained two east-west routes joining the farms, which were retained, and we now call them Green Lane and Hale House Lane. The enclosure ward set out another running along the northern boundary of the cultivated area, along the line of a former footpath across the waste. This we now call Jumps Road, and it's appreciably wider and straighter than the other two lanes. I think the roads had to be 40 feet. The two north-south roads were also set out in the award, the present 8087, which was even then the route to Farnham, and the new road through Tilford. The award then lists the land sold, giving the names of the buyers, etc., and enabling us to see that 344 acres of the 521 acres sold in church was bought by people with no previous parish connections. Then comes the land allotted to the Bishop of Winchester, one fifteenth of the residue of the common in lieu and full compensation for his loss of interest. That is to compensate him for the loss of the manorial waste. Although I believe that to this day, the bishop retains the interest in all mines for minerals, stones, and other substrate under the former waste. An interesting point, if oil were ever found under Frencham Common. And I know relatively recently, people who had been copyholders did receive something about mining, about the bishop still owning the soil from particular depths down. Anyway, the bishop received an allotment of 166 acres on the lower common and further acreage in Beacon Hill, which is where the Moore House, the nursing home that still has ecclesiastical connections is in Beacon Hill, it's built on that bishop's land. To comply with the act, land had to be allotted for the exercise and recreation of the inhabitants and more for the labouring poor. The people of Church were given 12 acres of land near the big pond and another small plot adjacent to the church for their exercise and recreation and 20 acres of land near Sandy Lane Rushmore for the allotments for the labouring poor. Not much when you've just lost 4,800 acres to roam over, so they've got about 40 acres. This latter, the allotments for the labouring poor, were supposed to be for the poor to rent to raise crops but the soil was so poor, and it was so far from most of the cottages, which in any case had quite large gardens, that it was never used. 
It's hard to see how these meagre allotments could have been considered compensation to the inhabitants for their loss of recreational facilities on the waste, or to the poor for their total loss of common rights. The 12 acres of land near the big pond referred to above eventually became the old church cricket ground, played on until after the First World War, and then superseded by the recreation ground and the plot near the church is now the village green. A pondered outlaw was designated a public pond to be maintained by the owner of the plot, but this has now disappeared into someone's back garden. It would be nice to resuscitate it as the village pond, but would it be worth the hassle? After all, the above allotments have been made, the award then turns to the waste to be allotted to the existing landholders in church. The remaining acres were divided into plots of different sizes according to the size and value of the man's existing holding. Within the limitations of the Act, the award seems to have been reasonably fair. The small landowners, whose plots were mostly clustered around the edges of the cultivated area, were given new plots as close as possible to their existing holdings and the larger landowners shared the remaining acres of the lower common and the upper common between them. Every single acre of land surrounding Church, Frencham Common, Whitmore Vale, Hindhead, etc. was allotted and thus passed into private ownership. We are able to see exactly who owned the land by studying the enclosure map and award. Over the years, of course, plots were bought and sold and certain landowners became dominant. George Kubit, later Lord Ashcombe, amassed a large estate in church, and when this was sold in the 1920s, it amounted to over 2,000 acres. Hindhead golf course was started on some of Cubitt's land in the early part of the 20th century, and was enlarged after the sale of Cubitt's estate. This sale also introduced Lloyd George to church. He bought some of the eastern part and founded his Avalon orchards, bringing a lot of employment to the village. The Enclosure Act stated that the hedges, banks, fences and ditches surrounding the allotted plots should be made up within one year, each allotment holder being responsible for particular boundaries. This does not seem to have been strictly enforced. The parish officers didn't fence their plot. They still admit to cattle wandering on the recreation ground 25 years after it should have been enclosed. The lower common has obviously never been divided by hedges. That's Frencham Common now. But I feel sure that the shallow ditches and banks evident today mark the boundaries of these enclosure awards. And it's a great job for a keen walker using a map and a compass. And that was the end of enclosure. The process started in 1848, was completed in 1857, and resulted in every single acre of manorial waste being allotted to a new owner. Although I investigated many sources, from census returns to poor law records, I couldn't prove that enclosure caused any deterioration in the living conditions of the peasants. In fact, they were poor before enclosure and still poor afterwards. But I cannot believe that the loss of their freedom and their common rights had no effect. And I'm inclined to agree with W.E. Tate, who says that it is from the social point of view, rather than a matter of pure economics or economic history, that enclosure carried out as in fact it was, is to be regarded as a major disaster to the village community. These are points that George Bourne was making in Change in the Village, which is one of the other things that I listened to last year, which mentioned enclosure. John Clare, the Northamptonshire poet, puts his feelings into these words. Enclosure came and every path was stopped. Each tyrant fixed his sign where paths were found to hint a trespass now who crossed the ground. And a 16th century verse echoes the theme of unfairness. 
They hang the man and flog the woman that steals the goose from off the common, but let the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose. William Cobbett was an opponent of enclosure and its effect on the rural poor. And he said, those who are so eager for the new enclosure seem to argue as if the wasteland in its present state produced nothing at all. But is this the fact? Can anyone point out a single inch of it which does not produce something and the produce of which is made use of? It goes to the feeding of sheep, of cows of all descriptions, and it helps to rear in health and vigor numerous families of the children of the laborers, which children, were it not for these wastes, must be crammed into the stinking suburbs of towns. So you can see what Cobbett thought about enclosure. He didn't think it was a good thing. One of the major effects in church was a very substantial change in population. Wealthy people bought land and erected large houses. They also bought up the old farms, making the former small farmers employees rather than landowners. The quote from Tate, enclosure has had much to do with making the English village a class society of clearly demarked possessors and dispossessed. This was very marked for many years, although it is declining now, and the population is less demarked. In the interest of balance, I should point out that the village gained both a church in 1868 and a school in 1870, probably as a result of the increase in population and the arrival of the middle classes wanting to spread bounty. I have a recording from a lady in the 1920s, and she was talking about life. And she said, these weren't high up people. They were people with wealth, but the girls had to curtsy and the boys had to doff their caps whenever they saw any of these new inhabitants around the village. As a postscript to this particular enclosure, it was interesting to learn the following. This is about enclosures in general. For 25 years, there was little supervision of the enclosure commissioners, what a surprise, by Parliament until opposition to the annual bill of 1869 by an MP, Henry Fawcett. Because of this opposition, a select committee was set up to investigate the bill. The committee were very impressed by evidence of the marked deterioration in the labourers' condition following enclosure. They found that the original inquiries were often held at times when it was impossible for labourers to attend and that the provisions made for recreation grounds and allotments were inadequate. They decided that the 1845 Act had to be overhauled and that no more enclosure should take place until this was done. As part of their investigations, a questionnaire was sent to the parish officers of Frencham and presumably to other affected parishes. Luckily, this questionnaire and the answers are given in full in the vestry minutes and enable us to see how enclosure had worked in church. We see that the land allotted to the labouring poor was little used. The situation and quality were such that the poor could not be induced to take any for cultivation. They would also have to pay rent for it. James Simmons, the church warden for Pitfold, sent a very interesting letter to the committee. He stated that the poor had their own gardeners to look after, which were large enough for them to manage after a day's work. If more land were given to them, it would make them unsettled and with bad habits. He was one of the wealthier farmers. They would become like the squatters before enclosure, loose and unsteady, bad workers and frequenters of public houses. It's difficult for us to see quite why this should follow, but indicative of the attitudes of the time. And so, although the 1869 bill was eventually passed, 
No more enclosure took place under the General Act until 1878, after the passing of a new Act in 1876. The wastelands of the Manor of Farnham in Frensham, Church and Pitfold were enclosed during a period, 1845 to 1869, in which 320,000 acres had been enclosed with very little supervision by Parliament. In that time, only 2,000 acres had been allotted for the benefit of the labourers and cottagers. The new Act of 1876 included a statement that enclosure should be for the public good rather than for private profit. Lastly, why is the land so open today? Only by accident, simply because most of Frencham Common, parts of Whitmore Vale, the Punchbowl, etc., have been inquired by the National Trust. They are not common within the old meaning of the word. Nobody holds any common rights over them, but by a fluke, they remain for us all to enjoy today. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.